Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room Histories, the history of China. Last week, we did a dive into the rituals and the sacrifices of the Xiang Dynasty, and ultimately finished up by examining one of the emperors where something substantive does actually exist, and that was in the form of Emperor Wu Ding. As we saw last week, Wu Ding saw the military chariot be quote-unquote invented in China, although it was most likely taken from contact with western horse tribes that had already possessed it. And that point cannot be understated. Because so far in this story, we have not really talked too much, if at all, about any outside peoples. So contact with nomadic horse tribes provides us with a foundation for a topic that will last throughout most of this story. Because outside contact with nomadic horse tribes is about to become way more frequent. Also, before we get started today, I want to wish a happy birthday to a dedicated listener. Happy birthday, Dad. Enjoy the birthday, and hopefully, well, if I'm lucky, this episode too. But nonetheless, this week we will dive into the Shang Dynasty and the pressures they saw from outside their borders, but more importantly, the pressures that were brewing within them. Because dynastic struggle and poor leadership eventually causes one to lose the mandate of heaven and therefore, all the legitimacy to rule at all. And like we know by now, losing the mandate of heaven does not just spell leadership change. Nope, because that spells wholesale dynastic change. So without further ado, The History of China, Episode 5. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The Shang Dynasty, started by Tang of Shang, had seen the Xia Dynasty lose the mandate of heaven. Tang of Shang used this fact to galvanize his people and gain support to topple the Xia dynasty entirely. The Xia dynasty, like the Shang, were started by a great leader, and in the Xia's case, it was the almost mythologically amazing Yu the Great. Remember him? He was the one who finally stopped the great floods of the Yellow River and was down in the mud with his workers the whole 13 years the project took to complete. But the Xia eventually lost their path, and debauchery, gluttony, and, look, general bad leadership eventually consumed the Xia dynasty entirely, and Tang of Shang realized that the dynasty had gone astray. And as we already know, Tang of Shang had the mandate of heaven on his side, and soon after toppled the Xia after the decisive battle at Ming Tiao. But as Roger Daltrey of the Hu says, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Because the Shang themselves, well, eventually lost their virtuous path. And like the Xia dynasty before them, someone else was going to get that blessing from heaven and topple, oh, not just the sitting emperor, but instead the entire dynasty. But let's just take a step back to see where the Shang were before the end became nigh. And real quickly, I realized that in the last few shows, I began getting a little lazy with the years and instead just sort of moved with the story in a this-happened-and-then-that-happened kind of order. But to recalibrate ourselves here, the Shang Dynasty started around the year 1600 BC. So, 1600 BC is when Tang of Shang establishes the dynasty, and it lasted all the way until 1046 BC. But look, no, I will not be blazing through 500 years of history every week like I have been so far. Because soon, the history that we will be seeing was actually happening at the same time that the historians that I have so far been relying on actually existed. So the detail will soon become much, much more dense. 
Nonetheless, the Shang Dynasty, as seen under the rule of Emperor Wu Ding, began to push outward and made enough contact with the outside world and probably in some fashion of this were able to co-opt the horse chariot, which again, is really important. And this invention, the horse chariot, would be used for a long, long, long time in ancient China. And Emperor Wu Ding actually has something more written about him in the actual old history text than just the sort of typical one or two sentences written for most Shang-era rulers. Not just the, well, he was the son of X and father of Y, or things were good or things were not so good during so-and-so's reign, but instead we have become more aware of what actually happened under Wu Ding's reign. Besides conquering outward, which I will get to more in a second, social productivity under him also developed to an extremely high level, including huge gains in textiles or medicine and even astronomy. Serving as emperor for a mind-numbing 59 years, he was the second longest sitting emperor of the Xiang dynasty, and he was the longest sitting emperor for 200 years before him, and was the longest sitting emperor of anyone after him. 59 years seems like a single drop in the ocean that is the long course of history. But in our perspective, imagine having a president for 59 years. That would essentially be electing JFK in around 1961, and him, well, still being president now. That seems a bit crazy, doesn't it? That much time at the wheel allows you to pursue a lot of projects that others just don't have the ability to do. And for Emperor Wu Ding, that was to conquer. We already got into the nitty-gritty details of when he conquered and who he conquered, but the grand point is that he provided one of the very first state-sanctioned conflicts and conquests and contact with nomadic horse groups since the age of the five emperors. And well, that's almost a given since, well, everyone back in the age of the five emperors was nomadic. So all conflict was, well, yeah, always against nomads. But the nomads in the north and the west of the Shang dynasty would cause occasional problems, but nothing of note really. But they aren't done, and these horsemen will be back. But it's after Emperor Wu Ding that the wheels began to really fall off the bus. Essentially, he is a Constantine or Aurelian figure, as in he's the last notable leader before a harsh, harsh decline. Remember how I said that the last nine emperors sacrificed 13,000 people in total because things weren't going well? Well, those last nine emperors started literally right after Emperor Wu Ding died. And by the last two emperors, the writing began to be clearly on the wall that the Shang dynasty was on its last legs. And the second to last Shang ruler was, well, Emperor Di Yi. Di Yi came to power in 1101 BC, and by the time he was there, things were already beginning to slip. Administration within the actual dynasty was quickly deteriorating, and barbarians in the north were essentially acting as vultures to the carcass that was, well, the weakening Shang dynasty. In the third year of his reign, Emperor Di Yi had his military go out and crush the Kun barbarians in the Ordus, which today is a region in Inner Mongolia. Wait a minute. Mongolian nomads? Well, Emperor Di Yi just beat them, so, well, we won't ever hear about Mongolian horse nomads ever again. Oh, what's that? Oh, wait, never mind. Anyway, regardless of his victory over the Kun barbarians and the Ren Fong barbarians a few years later, 
These were Pyrrhic victories for Emperor Di Yi, and the dynasty was still sinking and taking on more water with every single passing year. And in the year 1076 BC, Emperor Di Yi dies. But, and this should be noted, his bloodline doesn't. And it's commonly accepted, and possibly very, very true, that he was a direct ancestor to Kong Zhe, or as we know him, Confucius. But that is a story for a different day. But look, don't worry, that day for that story is fast approaching. Nonetheless, Di Yi was succeeded by King Zhou of Shang, aka Di Xin. For all those who have read ahead, the Zhou are the third and final pre-imperial dynasty, but no, look, while confusing, Zhou of Shang is not the same as the Zhou state that founded the next dynasty. Instead, this Zhou translates roughly to Krupper, which yeah, if you don't know, like myself, it is the part of the horse saddle that is most likely to be soiled on. So yeah, well, it's safe to say that he didn't give himself that name, and also, unfortunately, bodes a slight spoiler to how this rule is going to go for him. Krupper King, or Dishin, however you want to name him, is a character that has gotten the Nero treatment in the eyes of history. Look, was he a bad ruler? Yes. But was he that bad? No. He gets smeared clearly in later histories that have a very small negotiable level of truth to them. And a lot of the faults of the Xiang dynasty's latter years seem to be, well, just lumped solely onto Dishin, the Krupper King. Because the Shang had long been losing heaven's approval and had done so to the extremes. If they were going to lose it, the Shang dynasty were going to go all out. According to later historians, and if you haven't gotten the pattern yet, take the word of later historians with a grain of salt, as they themselves have their own themes and messages that they are wishing to promote. But still, some of it was definitely true. And claims of chronic drunkenness, incest, Pornographic songs, which, yes, by the way, these were actually a real thing. Sadistic punishments, which were also very true and very real. And even cannibalism were easy, surefire way to lose heaven's approval. And, well, yeah, the Xiang did all of these, and Di Xin fit a lot of them himself. According to the records of the Grand Historian, Han-era historian Sima Qian wrote that Di Xin, in the early part of his reign, had abilities which surpassed those of an ordinary man. And he was quick-witted, but equally as quick-tempered. But according to legend, he was intelligent enough to win all of his arguments, and he was strong enough to hunt wild beasts with his bare hands. And look, as I've alluded to already, a significant amount of the information regarding Di Xin's life have been falsified by following dynasties. Thus, many modern-day historians believe that he in fact was reasonable and was intelligent without several of the cruelties that have been later attributed to him. Though, here's the thing, some of them are still true. The following accounts were oftentimes written in records that were published in the millennium following his death, during which many misconceptions surrounding him arose. So look, bad leader? Yes. Was he the Antichrist? No. But it seems that the wheels began to fall off for Di Xin in the later years of his reign, as the Krupper King gave himself more and more over to drinking and women and abandoned his morals wholesale. Though, along with abandoning his morals, he seems to have also abandoned his responsibility to rule, and the government, which was already burning down, 
now had kerosene thrown directly on top of it. According to Sima Qian, he even hosted festive orgies where many people engaged in tons of immoral things all at the same time, and he did this with his concubines, and he created songs with crude lyrics and poor rhythm. Remember those pornographic songs? Here's an example of them. But a thing begins to repeat itself. Mike Duncan, in the History of Rome podcast, often alludes to the common Roman historical trope of the plotting evil mother. And China seems to have its own tropes as well. And look, let me just see if you guys can pick up on this. In Legends, Di Xin is depicted as having come under the influence of his wicked wife, Da Ji. And she was, yes, a concubine, and they committed all manner of evils and cruel deeds together. One of the most famous forms of entertainment Di Xin the Crupper King enjoyed with his wife was the alcohol pool and the meat forest. Which was, by the way, a large pool big enough for several canoes that was constructed on the palace grounds with the inner linings made of polished oval-shaped stones from the seashores. So already pretty difficult to make. But this allowed for the entire pool to not be filled with water, nope, but instead alcohol. On top of that, a small island was constructed in the middle of the pool where trees were planted. But he had the branches made of roasted meat skewers that hung over the pool. And this allowed Di Xin and his friends and his concubines to drift on the canoes in the pool. And when they got thirsty, all they had to do was reach down with their hands and drink the wine. And what do you do if they get hungry? Well, easy. They just reached up with their hands and ate the fresh roasted meat. And this was considered to be one of the most famous examples of over-decadence and corruption of a ruler in the entire history of China. But wait, hold, hold up. That sounds familiar. Almost too familiar. Remember the last emperor of the Xia dynasty, which again was the dynasty before this? Well, it's interesting. He too fell for an evil concubine. And yeah, he too made an alcohol lake. Oh, and interesting, he too did all sorts of debauched things with his evil concubine. And he too was the last emperor for his respective dynasty. On top of that, the Xia dynasty's evil concubine laughed as everyone drowned after she ordered them to drink the lake dry. And in this case, in order to please his concubine, Di Xin the Crupper King created the Cannon Burning Punishment which essentially is where a large hollow bronze cylinder was stuffed with burning charcoal and was allowed to burn until it was red hot. Whereabouts, prisoners were made to literally just hug the hot cylinder, which, yeah, resulted in painful and very ugly deaths. So there's something about evil concubines, huh? It's almost like there's a theme they're trying to get across here, but I'll leave that to you guys to decipher for yourselves. But nonetheless, clearly there is a trope going on. And clearly this story, especially given the fact that it's essentially just a recycled copy version of the last dynasty's final ruler, is a way to prove that I guess that without a doubt, the mandate of heaven had been lost. And by God, if they have an alcohol lake, oh, they truly are the worst and truly do need to be overthrown. And again, I'm going to reiterate, Di Xin was probably a bad ruler. He was, and probably did some horribly debauched stuff. But an alcohol lake and a meat forest? Most certainly no. Did he drink his time away and enjoy the finer things while also not actually doing his job? Yes, of course, most likely. But whatever he was doing, heavy taxes were implemented to fund these activities. And by the way, that definitely could have and probably did happen. 
from Rome to France to South America, heavy taxes being implemented to fund the lavish lifestyles of a debauched ruler is a very real thing. So there's no reason why it did not occur here. So with these heavy taxes, the people of the Shang began to suffer greatly if they were not already. Even Di Xin's own brother tried to persuade him to change, but he was shot down. Not literally, just, you know, pushed aside. Essentially, he came up and said, hey man, look, it's time to get a grip, but that didn't work. And eventually, Di Xin, the Krupper King's uncle, tried to talk some sense into him. But unlike his brother, Di Xin had his uncle's heart ripped out of his body so he could see what the heart of a sage looked like. What an anecdote that is. So, clearly no one could talk Dishin off these debauched and expensive paths, and if you tried, well, you were likely to, literally, get your heart ripped out of your body. So as you can tell with this, the people of the Shang Dynasty were not happy, although it's important to mention that they probably hadn't been for a while. But here's the thing, Dishin is the last straw. Remember a few episodes ago, I explained how this was not a unified empire. Instead, it was several vassal states loyal to a certain dynastic rule. And Tong of Shang of the Shang state led a revolt against the Xia, which they were a vassal state of, in revolt of that dynasty. And well, spoiler alert, the same thing was about to happen here. But this time, it was the Zhou state that made the first move. A Zhou state native, a man named, well, he was the king of the region, called King Wen, had been hired by Di Xin, the Krupper king himself, to guard his rear while he himself was involved in a southeastern campaign. But in a very Stalin-esque move, Di Xin got very wary and very paranoid about King Wen's growing power, and he had him imprisoned. But in a not-so-Stalin-esque move, King Wen was soon released, and yeah, obviously tensions began to run pretty high. But why didn't Di Xin, the Krupper King, just kill King Wen? Well, look, maybe it's a smart political gamble. Because, yeah, killing the king of a vassal state would all but guarantee a revolt. Or, yeah, maybe he was just too drunk and into his vices to care enough to have King Wen officially neutralized. Regardless, King Wen was free, and he built an army and then immediately proceeded on conquering a few smaller states which were still loyal to the Shang, which in part began to slowly weaken the Shang's allies. But again, Di Xin paid very little attention to this, as again, maybe it's because he viewed himself as the rightful ruler of China, which, reminding you, was a position literally appointed by the heavens, or perhaps, and more realistically again, was because he was becoming more and more engrossed with his personal life and his vices. But interestingly in this story, King Wen of the Zhou state died in 1050 BC, before the Zhou state had mounted any actual offensive against the Shang. Instead, King Wen's son, King Wu of Zhou, assumed the new role. But he would not immediately fire up the revolt. But why not? Well, the reason for this delay was allegedly because King Wu believed that the heavenly order to conquer the Shang had not been given yet. And, well, he also got advice from his father's advisor, Jiang Ziya, to wait for the right opportunity. And Jiang Ziya would continue to play a crucial part in this story, playing sort of the General Agrippa to King Wu's Augustus, in that Jiang Ziya is a vital and loyal partner in the government works, but more importantly, in their military action. 
And it was really Jiang Ziya's advice that had put the whole revolt on a quick hold. Because Jiang Ziya had told the new young King Wu that, quote, While I was fishing at Panxi, I realized one truth. If you want to succeed, you need to be more patient. We must wait for the appropriate opportunity to eliminate the King of Shang, end quote. And soon after this, it was reported that the people of the Shang dynasty were so oppressed that no one even dared speak. And this was the sign, and King Wu immediately made his move. With Jiang Ziya as his strategist, King Wu of Zhou led an army of about 50,000 men to the Shang capital. And yeah, 50,000 is not a lot, but Di Xin's army was at war in the east. Which, yeah, should help, but the fact of the matter is that Di Xin still had 530,000 men to defend the capital city of Yin. But to further secure his own defense and his own victory, Di Xin the Krupper King gave weapons to about 170,000 slaves to help protect the capital city. But yeah, obviously these slaves did not want to fight for the corrupt Shang dynasty. And instead of fighting, well, obviously, they just took their weapons and then defected to the Zhou army. So it's safe to say that for Di Xin the Krupper King, that plan backfired. And it backfired even more because according to the histories, that defection of all the slaves greatly lowered the morale of the actual Shang troops. And once the decisive battle of Mu Ye began, many Shang soldiers did not fight at all. And instead, they just held their spears upside down, which was a sign that they no longer wanted to fight for the corrupt and clearly doomed Shang dynasty. On top of that, some Shang soldiers even joined the Zhou soldiers outright. Not only were they not fighting, they were changing teams mid-game. And while this seems like a surefire way to have a very quick battle, the battle was not quick, and it became quite bloody. But the Zhou troops in the end were much better trained, and the morale was notably much higher. And in one of the chariot charges, King Wu himself broke through the Shang's defense line. And that was it. Di Xin was forced to flee to his palace, and the remaining Shang troops fell into further chaos. No leader, half of us have defected, some of us aren't even fighting, and the Zhou were victorious and showed very little mercy to the defeated Shang, shedding enough blood to quote, float a log, end quote. What an image that is, though probably not enough to afloat a literal log. But what did Di Xin do once he realized his gig was up? Well, he did what anyone else would do. He ran back to the palace, adorned himself with every jewel and valuable possession that he had, stood in the middle of the palace, and then lit the whole place on fire with him inside. And on top of that, Joe troops soon captured that evil concubine that I'd mentioned earlier, whose name again was Da Ji. And with Jiang Ziya's advice, she was quickly executed. So now, the emperor of the Xiang dynasty was dead. And so was his evil mistress. But the Zhou had the mandate of heaven, thus they were virtuous, and they did not need to purge the entire dynasty. Instead, many of the Shang government officials were just released without charge, some even going so far as to just, well, work for the Zhou dynasty. On top of that, the grain store was finally opened and all the starving people were able to eat. Everything now was back on track, and a new dynasty, the Zhou, in the year 1046 BC, had begun.
There would be no war of any sort, definitely no period of warring states under this dynasty, and the Joe lived on happily ever after. Wait, that's, that's not what happened. But that is where I will leave it for today. I know, this was a bit of a longer episode, but we had a lot to cover. So nonetheless, check back in next week for episode 6, whereabouts we will begin to look at the complex, bloody, and amazing Joe dynasty. As a quick little tidbit or appetizer, I'll mention that the Joe produced a lot. A lot of the histories we have used so far, well, come from the Joe dynasty. But this dynasty also includes the works of Sun Tzu, and yes, he's the one that wrote The Art of War. And yes, this is the dynasty where Confucius lived and died. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on Dorm Room Histories, the history of China.